0: Welcome to the Paris Cinema Podcast, where we discuss cult films, genre films, experimental and art house movies, and anything else that has flown under the radar of mainstream moviegoers. So I want to mention today that we got a special guest, uh, Dominic Smith. Dom is a good friend of mine that uh, we've known each other for about 10 years. We did a study abroad trip in france uh quite a long time ago and we just sort of uh have been friends ever since and we worked on a couple of films together so thank you dom for for joining us oh it's a pleasure to be here thanks for having me yeah and you know why i brought you on here which is i certainly do We uh, we both sort of bonded once upon a time over our love of this movie that we're going to talk about today, which is the original 1982 Ridley Scott film, Blade Runner. So what do you have to say about that?
1: Well, first and foremost, I think it depends on which version of Blade Runner you're asking me
0: about. Right. <laughs> well, we're going to get into that as well. but. Let's just kind of um we'll tell our listeners really quick just what this movie is in case they haven't seen it. This as I mentioned this was a Ridley Scott film uh, released in 1982. It stars Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, uh Sean Young and Edward James almost. And how would you describe this film if you were to like give a brief synopsis to someone who hasn't seen this before? What would you what would you say this is about, Dom?
1: Well, Blade Runner's kind of a accidental masterpiece in a lot of ways. I think in 1982, when Hampton Fancher, and David Peoples put the script together and got Scott on board, I don't think any of them really uh, jumped at the opportunity to make a bad film, but certainly at the time, Blade Runner was not just a disaster on set, but it was a complete box office flop and critical nightmare. But uh, in the spirit of your podcast, Caleb, I mean, it's uh, it has garnered quite a cult status and has actually ended up going on to be what I think a lot of scholars, critics, uh, movie buffs would all agree is one of the best films ever made. So in that regard, mm-hmm. it, it it's a happy accident. It's a, it's quite a slow film, but it ha- it's a sci-fi film on the surface, but it's absolutely full of of philosophical discourse, existential uh, questions, a kick-ass score from the late Vangelis, or Vangelis. I've never really learned what the correct Greek way to pronounce his name is.
0: I, I believe it's Vangelis. <laughs> yeah, okay, so I got it right the first time. Yeah, you know. But
1: Yeah, so if I was to tell someone what Blade Runner's about, it's basically about the future. I mean, it's hilarious because I think in the film, it it's set in Los Angeles in... Uh, 2019, or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And it tells the story of a uh, detective known as a Blade Runner who's tasked with tracking down artificial intelligence robots, if you will, uh, and retiring them, uh, which is a polite way, basically, of saying killing robots that get out of hand. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's kind of how I would describe the film to someone who had never heard of it.
0: Yeah, I generally agree with that. It's uh, the the plot itself is is pretty basic, you know. In terms of Harrison Ford's character is the Blade Runner, and he's uh, sort of comes out of retirement to uh, track down these four uh, replicants, almost like they they look human, they they sound human, but they kind of have this like superhuman strength because they're bioengineered uh so harrison ford has to track these things down and kill them but uh they're like like you said there's a lot of uh there's a lot of philosophical questions that are raised during the course of this which uh i i think the biggest question is you know what does it mean to be human is probably the biggest question that it raises for me and uh I think we get some answers, but there's a lot of lot more bigger questions at play than uh than what the the film actually wants to give us it's it's a more intellectual film than I think a lot of people were re- really ready for when it came out in nineteen eighty two
1: yeah, I would agree with that. I don't think it stops there even I think the film subtly attempts to ask questions about uh, wealth inequality. I think the film also tries to discuss the nature of whether or not you can prove that you are real yourself, um, whether our memories are real. In fact, I think that's probably the first theme that really ever drew me to Blade Runner was the idea of memories not being reliable.
0: Mm -hmm. Sure.
1: Which is a hard concept to think about, but I think it's also a hard pill for even for your casual viewer to think about. I mean, how much do you really
0: trust your memories? Do they really tell you the truth about what happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I kind of, uh, I don't know if I've ever asked you this question before. And I I know that uh, you've told me before that this is, that this is your favorite film. Is that still the case?
1: Yeah. No, I think it's a film I watch or at least try to watch every year. And there's there's not really a month that goes by that I don't think about it. Yeah. It's definitely my favorite film ever made.
0: Can you remember the first time that you saw it? I did. Yeah, I, I, I can. I can totally remember that. Uh, when I was
1: ten, my dad had a DVD collection, and um, it gives you a kind of interesting take on uh, how how young I was when I first saw it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I thought the cover of this dvd looked really cool i mean if you remember the poster it's kind of this Mm -hmm. iconic sci-fi poster there's a guy with a cool gun on it Mm -hmm. a couple women some villainous characters and then just
0: this incredible cityscape it's kind of like one of those 80s montage posters that was very much in the vein of stuff like star wars and uh, indiana jones and that kind of movie poster
1: A hundred percent. And it wouldn't surprise me if the poster was done by the same artist as those films. Mm -hmm. So, you know, me being 10 and seeing that, I thought, well, that looks like a pretty kick-ass movie, but it was rated R. So I had to ask my parents uh, if I could watch it at the time, which is comical considering how dry Mm -hmm. the film is. And, uh, there's some nudity. There is some nudity. But, uh, spoiler alert. Spoiler, yeah. uh, but my dad and my mom, I think they kind of laughed. They, I mean, I think they both knew that, uh, not only would I be bored to tears watching the film, which I ended up being at 10 years old, but, uh, I just think they thought, you know what, if he wants to give that film a shot, he can. And what's hilarious is the first version of Blade Runner that I saw was not the theatrical cut. It was the director's cut. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, my parents were correct. The first time I saw it, I was completely bored. There was no action. I mean, there there is a couple of scenes of of gunfighting, but for the most part, there, there's not a lot of um, uh, violence that takes place with uh, guns or lightsabers or, you know, the traditional mm. sci-fi uh, fantasy fair.
0: Um, a
1: ton of action. Yeah, not really at all. And the script went way over my head. I had no idea what was being discussed half the time. I was just far too young to to, to watch the movie. And it wasn't until mm-hmm. uh I got properly into cinema um I was about uh somewhere in high school, I might have been a sophomore or junior in high school that I uh gave it another watch and suddenly it was it was like having a religious experience. It, the film made me look at my own life, humanity, everything that I thought was real in a different light. And that's the power of any good art is it makes you reevaluate your own life.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I have a similar um, experience as you and that uh, the first time I saw it, I was also fairly young and I didn't i didn't get it either. You know, it's kind of interesting because um, I didn't know what the film was. And this was kind of, uh, I want to say this was the early 90s, uh, maybe '90. Three ninety four, something like that, and I was really big into collecting movies and home theater. And at the time, I kind of had this like, even though I was really young, I had this distaste for VHS tapes, which almost <laughs> everything was on. But so I was kind of on this journey of collecting laser discs, and laser discs were the pinnacle of of home theater at the time because you know you had the closest thing that you could get to 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 the actual cinema because you know the movies were letterbox the quality was much much better than vhs and so but it was really the letterbox movies that like really fascinated me however i was i i want to say i was at target one day with my mom and i was just kind of browsing the movies there and they are all they only had VHS there, but I was bored because my mom was like shopping and doing something else. So I was looking at the movies and I saw in like the bargain bin this copy, this VHS copy of Blade Runner. And I had no idea what it was, but the thing that kind of caught my eye was that it was in letterbox, which I'd never seen a VHS tape that was letterboxed. And for those of you who don't know what Letterboxing is, it's the film is presented in the original widescreen aspect. So you've got the black bars on the top and bottom of the TV. Now... That's fairly common now, but back in the 90s the only way to see these kind of movies was typically on laserdisc. So anyway, I was fascinated and I bought this tape and got it home, watched it and I kind of had the same reaction like I didn't connect with it. I didn't I had no idea what was going on and it just seemed a little slow and boring to me. And again, I was probably like 14 years old at the time and it wasn't until years later where I picked it up on DVD uh, that it was the same kind of thing. I was like, what the hell is this movie? This is just this amazing experience. Like, I, I And I think that as you get older, at least for myself, like the more I watch it and the more I get older, the more relevant it becomes. I mean, this movie has just aged very well at this point. But at the same time, like as you get older, you start to ask these deeper questions about the meaning of life, the meaning of humanity and all of these things. And these are the questions that are being ra- raised in this movie. And so, I, I do think that it is uh, a movie that you kind of have to... It's really designed for a mature adult audience that are going to really think about these things on a deep level. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think it's for children.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I uh, I don't disagree with you at all there. I, out of curiosity, what was the VHS version of the film?
0: Uh, it was actually the director's cut okay. and... Yeah. One of the things that I was going to bring up is, uh, you know, for us to talk about is like, you know, what are all these versions of, of, of it out there? And I want to say that, well, we know that there's a theatrical cut because you already mentioned it, but are, are you pretty aware of all of the different, uh, the differences in all of the cuts?
1: I'm aware of a lot of the main differences. So for example, the voiceover narration is Mm. in the theatrical cut. Yeah. But... Before um, we dive into kind of the differences, I think it's worth pointing out for any listeners that part of the reason that this film has so many versions is because it was such a disaster to get made in the first place. And Mm -hmm. uh, Ridley Scott, I think, always knew there was a a gem of a film tucked away in what he shot. But Mm -hmm. it took him quite literally... Uh, some would say, uh, 20, 20 odd years to, to really nail down what the film was trying to say. So I don't know if you want to talk a bit about why it was such a disaster and what the main differences are, but I just think it's worth, uh, stating that for the listeners that this is a, this is a film that took not just the, the filming time in production time, Mm -hmm. but it also took 20 years of post-production, even after the film had come out, re-edits everything.
0: Yeah, you're right. And I think a, a big reason for that is, um, as you mentioned, we can kind of talk about the, the what went on in production later on. Um, but in terms of the actual release of the film, uh, essentially now for those of you listening who don't really kind of know exactly what happens to a film during the post-production phase and editing, uh, essentially when you, when you start to assemble the film, It goes through several stages of editing, you know, and during those stages, uh, people, the higher ups, the producers, the executives view cuts of the film. And then eventually, once those cuts get approved, they go to test audiences. And in the case of Blade Runner, the test audiences were actually um, performed in Denver, Colorado, and they did not do well at all. (laughs) <laughs> and and so basically, it was just a total disaster. And so the studio executives freaked out and they were like, well, nobody like knows what the hell is going on with the movie. So that's at the point where they called in Harrison Ford to record a voiceover. And that's what you're talking about, Dom, that made it into the theatrical cut because they just felt like they needed to dumb it down for the audience. Because yeah. for whatever reason, that specific test ob- audience just did not connect with it at all and again they freaked out in the last minute they just you know pulled final cut from ridley scott and were like hey you know we're gonna just edit it the, the way that we want it to be and the other big change that they made was the ending you know it's it's it's, it's more of a happy ending it's uh i don't know if you have you seen the theatrical cut
1: yes i have i own a i own a box set that has every version ever released gotcha. of blade
0: runner yeah, so you know what I'm talking about. Essentially what they did is um, you know, again spoiler alert, uh Deckard and Rachel end up kind of happily ever after and you see them like driving off into the beautiful wilderness and uh I always thought this was kind of funny that uh the uh, the the final shots, the aerial shots that you see of them like driving through the uh through the uh, the mountains and the beautiful wilderness and all this stuff was was leftover footage that that uh, was shot by Stanley Kubrick uh, when he did The Shining, <laughs> uh, and it's just it was just kind of thrown together like, hey, we need a happy ending. We'll just you know make the give the audiences what they want, and and you know it ended up not really helping at all because it was still it was still a flop and not only that the like critically it was just panned you know the critics didn't like it the audiences didn't like it and it didn't make money so overall it was a pretty well uh, a disaster i would say
1: yeah very much so and again i mean that's that's almost what makes the film all the more remarkable is that mm-hmm. over time and through various iterations of the film it has become iconic cinema legendary mm-hmm. cinema. I mean, yeah. there are very few filmmakers that don't uh, revere Blade Runner as one of the greatest films ever made. I mean, the fact that it has a sequel directed by someone like Denis Villeneuve is, uh, I think, says says quite a lot about the stature of the first film.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's very, it's, it's interesting because at the time, it seemed like it was very much um, of its time, you know, this sort of like, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties, when all of these sci-fi movies were just killing it, you know. Um, you know, we should mention that the, the you know, some of the other films that were released around the same time were stuff like, you know, Return of the Jedi came out after this, E.T., which was the biggest film of all time. And so the studios knew that this was a bankable product. You know, this was something that people were going were going and spending good money on were these these science fiction films but they just weren't prepared for something on this kind of intellectual level you know it just was not a popcorn flick and so it's just i think it was of its time but at the same time it was just too full it was it was too ahead of its time at the same time i guess is my point
1: yeah and i mean it's not to say that the studio didn't do all that it could i mean from a business perspective i think they. Uh, we're doing all, uh, some of the right things. I mean, for for starters, they hired Ridley Scott, who is just coming off of his landmark debut film, Alien, which was released in 1979. Mm-hmm. So yeah. th- you know, they are. It was th- three years after one of the biggest sci-fi films ever came out, and so yeah. it's not like the studio hired a nobody to tackle this film. They hired someone that was very, very in. For that time mm-hmm. and was very very yep. uh, popular and was young and would prop was considered to be one of the kind of great up and comers. But I just think that when people hear uh, about this film on what it was like during production, which I know we'll get to later, it just seems like a movie that no matter what people did, things just kept falling
0: apart. So let's let's go on. Let's touch on that a little bit further. Um, so. What was going on behind the scenes? Well, it's funny because uh,
1: there's a a beauty that... How do I put this? I'll start with the first main issue was the production design was a disaster. Um, Mm -hmm. They built all the sets on Blade Runner and Mm -hmm. it was... I think at the time quite an undertaking because if you've seen the film, right, the the sets are pretty incredible. And I think it's part of the reason the film still holds up today, much in the same way that Alien still holds up today. I mean, both of the, these films look like movies that honestly, Caleb, could have come out in the 90s. The sets mm-hmm. are so spectacular. They're, there's so much attention to detail that they do look real. And I think that's Partly why people were excited about this film when production began, these sets were being built. Sure. But I think the the scale was just too much for the production design team. I mean, mm-hmm. they had things breaking all the time. Uh, There was a heavy amount of water usage on set. I mean, it's raining in practically every scene. And the rain eroded paint, the rain destroyed wood on half of the uh, things they constructed. They were constantly having to tear things down to move it because the shot couldn't be set up appropriately based on the parameters of what they were building. I mean, if you think about it from a artistic standpoint, the last thing you wanna do when you get to set to start shooting is break for two weeks just so that they can fix the background. It's just, it's it, it interrupts the flow of things. It makes actors unhappy. And of course, we will get to how miserable Harrison Ford was on the set of the mm-hmm. original Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. It just was not a comfortable atmosphere. And it, most of the Blade Runner box sets today will include um, a documentary. It's actually quite a long documentary. About The making of Blade Runner. And I believe it's called, I think it's called Dangerous Days. Mm-hmm. But it's basically a documentary co- that's chronicling just the absurdity of how crazy the set was and, and just what it was like. There's only really one other film I can think of that was as, as chaotic, and that's probably Apocalypse Now.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, another one that was legendary for just like the horrendous production. Yeah. So yeah, Harrison Ford mentioned that as well, just how miserable everyone was on set. And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of, I mean, in a way, it sort of adds to this, the stress that you see on screen, like you can see his attitude in his character, you know, that it's that it's, some of that had to have been influenced about what was what was going on on set. Absolutely. And, for a
1: character that is quite gruff, I think it worked out rather nicely.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, an- another thing to mention is uh, I know that he he's mentioned this over the years, that this is one of his, his least favorite movies that he's done, but he's always surprised when people tell him that it's their favorite performance <laughs> and it's definitely one of my favorite Harrison Ford performances. I mean, it's, he, he just really shows that he's got, he's not just a star, he's got real acting skills and to go from Han Solo one year to Blade Runner in the next year and then go to Indiana Jones and do all of these things He's He really shows, within a very short span, like why he's so great. But I think that it's really Blade Runner that stood out for me as like the first time where I was like, wow, he's not just a movie star, this guy can actually act.
1: Yeah, um, to add on to your point, because I totally agree, I think what makes Ford an interesting actor, uh, if you think about him in roles as Indiana Jones or as Han Solo... He's a he's quite a physical actor. I think most action mm. stars are. Uh, there's a movement to them. There's a tongue-in-cheek approach to the fact that they are living a larger-than-life character that can run mm. through a crowded room with bullets flying everywhere, or you know, have a b- giant boulder chase after them, or laser bullets blasting by them, and they make it out in the yeah. nick of time. And so, it's hard for an action star to be given. Content, let's say, or a script that uh, maybe asks them to go a little deeper. But mm-hmm. what makes Ford's character as Deckard so interesting for me is it was the first time I saw him act with his eyes. The, there's not a lot of dialogue that comes from Deckard, mm-hmm. but there are, a, and there are a lot of scenes with just him alone. And it takes a certain kind of actor to be able to convey emotion just with a look and it was the first time I remember watching Harrison Ford and thinking you know damn this guy this guy is burying his soul and he's not even saying anything you can just tell that this person is tormented I mean one scene in particular when he is boozing in his apartment by himself and he is looking at photographs and he is making right. some discoveries about the case that he's on but really the scene serves as a as a kind of lends into just how alone and sad his life is
0: yeah he's in this gloomy dark sort of like film noir apartment you know like you said just pounding the booze and it's just quiet and alone and he's just he embodies that space
1: yeah i mean the other thing is there are there are There are scenes later on in the film, too, where you see, without going into too much detail too early in in this episode, there are scenes when he starts to slowly realize that his reality may not be quite what he thinks it is, where his eyes go from being, uh, I think as the film progresses, he kind of goes from being this gruff, closed off, wants nothing to do with anyone, alcoholic, into basically becoming more and more alive. His eyes almost Mm -hmm. get wider as the film progresses. And as he discovers what's going on in the case, he also discovers more about who he is. And I think that goes back to your original point about what this film is really about, Caleb, that you brought up in the beginning of this, uh, this podcast. It's really a film that begs to ask you, what is your own life? And what is the, what is actually the human experience if there ever is one?
0: Mm -hmm. Right. And what, what makes one person human because they were born as such versus another person who was made, you know, and, and I, I know that they expand on this even more so in, in 2049, but that's, you know, that's, I think that nobody really asks this question more overtly than Roy Batty, the, uh, the Rutger Hauer character, because, you know, he actually has quite eloquent dialogue where he talks about a lot of these things. You know, what does it mean to be uh, human and all of those things? But it's really interesting, like you said, where Ford's character goes through this progression, but it's it's a very nuanced performance. You know, he doesn't have to say anything. We see it in his face. We see it in the way that he looks at Rachel. You know, we know exactly what's going on. We don't need a voiceover for this. And I think that that was a big mistake in the theatrical cut. You know, definitely. That was a huge mistake to not trust the audience. And one of my biggest pet peeves and one of the things that I hate most is when uh, filmmakers and producers just insult the intelligence of their audience you know they think that we're too dumb that we can't get it and you know what if you can't get it on the first screening which you might most likely will not that'll encourage you to go back and watch it a second time and i'll tell you what like i've been watching this movie for almost 30 years now i can't tell you how many times i've seen it But every time i see it I've, i see something new i see something that i missed on a previous screening and There's so many layers to it that those, and that's what I love about a film. I don't want you to just give me the answers to everything. I want to be able to figure out things for myself and make my own analysis.
1: I I couldn't agree more. Um, And again, I think that's why this is a film that has stood the test of time and is still discussed today. And more importantly, it has sequels made about it. I mean, it's you have to mm-hmm. make a certain kind of film for anyone to even consider a sequel, and uh, this isn't even a film that necessarily needed one. But uh, it 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 is a it's a it's a remarkable film in that regard. I I wondered if um, we could talk a bit about Roy Batty's character and Rucker Hauer. Mm-hmm. because while we're on the subject of the acting, I I, I think we we do need to obviously mention that in my opinion, at least, you might disagree with me, the best performance in the film is from Rucker Hauer. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that stems from the fact that a lot of his lines were improvised, including what I would consider to be the most memorable, most important line in the film. Mm-hmm. All of these moments will be lost in time, like Tears and Rain, which was improvised as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what makes Rucker Hauer, um, I think, to your question, Point about the themes of the film, uh, you know, what does it mean to be human? I think Roy Batty's character really captures one one pretty universal truth for humanity, which is hmm. we are on a ticking time clock. We we're only around for a short amount of time as human beings. Some people live to be ten years old. Some people live to be a hundred years old. And there's no yeah. there's no real finite date. But what makes the replicants the the AI, the robots, in Blade Runner's universe so interesting is that they know when they're going to die because there mm. is a clock set from their birth, if you will, that if you flip onto the human psyche, you start to empathize with Roy Batty's uh, quest to quote, and this is the line he says to, to his creator, I want more life. And it, the question then is, you know, if you knew that you had an ex- Expiration date. Would you spend your entire life attempting to figure out a way to live longer, or is that something that is is death one of those things you only welcome when you feel that you've had enough time? Mm-hmm. And that's just one small aspect of the kind of themes that we're discussing that Blade Runner puts out there.
0: Yeah, and to just to touch on that, you know, Tyrell even brings this up with you know statement when uh, you know. So Tyrell meets, is is the maker of all of these replicants. He's sort of like the father the of god. the replicants, <laughs> the god. Yes. And um, Roy Batty wants to, you know, his whole mission from the start of the film is to get in touch with this guy so he can try to figure out how he can extend his life because he knows he's got basically the timeline of this whole film is about 2 months from the very start to the very end and so uh roy batty knows that they've got this t- he, they basically he's got 2 months to live and he's got to figure out a way to get in touch with tyrell to try to get him to extend his life and once they finally meet you know tyrell tells him you know there's no there's no way to fix it you know this is just the way that it is but one of the things that he says to him is the you know is the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long and so what he's suggesting is that you know these these replicants were were built to be better than human i mean they're they're what is their uh, their their phrase more human than human yeah more human than human right so they've got this superhuman strength they've got all of these abilities they've got advanced intelligence and all of these things but at the same time they've they've got a four year lifespan right and you know we learn later on that that they're trying to figure out a way to extend that and that's you know when we're introduced to rachel we see that that's the case and the way that they're uh, their way around these the problem of these replicants kind of losing their mind and going going batshit crazy is to give them these memories and that kind of touches on what you were talking about Earlier in the podcast where, you know, memory serves one of the biggest themes in this film, because now we've got these replicants that are more robotic and the new generation is more human because now they've got all these human memories. But they can't tell. They they don't know that. Like, Rachel doesn't know that she's a replicant. You know, she thinks that she's human. At least until later in the film. Yes. Right. Initially, um. You know, when uh, Deckard is sent over to the Tyrell Corporation to put the machine, so to speak, on her to test to see if she's a replicant, she gets farther than any other replicant that he's ever tested because she because of the fact that she doesn't actually know that she's one. But it's the memories that make her more human. And so that that kind of feeds into that question, like, okay, these things are essentially like almost like clones of humans. You know, they're biological, but they're just, they're made instead of born. So, w- but what makes them less human than us just because we were born, you know? Um, so I always find that an interesting aspect of it. But the, uh, the fact that there's these memories... That they can, these replicants, they're fake memories, but they can remember back to their childhood and so forth. That makes them think that, you know, they, they have no idea that they were just made.
1: So on the subject of, of memories, you know, out of curiosity, I don't, I mean, I'm going to ask you this. How many childhood photos that you look at do you actually remember being taken?
0: Oh, none.
1: So what does that, yeah. what does that say about... Our inability to really remember things. I mean, there are many uh, moments in the film where there there are photographs that are observed Mm -hmm. from various characters. And I think that was done on purpose to uh, maybe get the audience to consider how much of your own life do you actually remember. And the things that you do remember are generally either the best of times or the worst of times but it's the in between days it's the dinner on a wednesday night the 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 you know your first day of school in in second grade i mean all these photographs that our parents took of us i mean by the time i i became an adult i mean i'm 31 now but when i look back at these these photo albums i honestly don't remember I would say 75% of the Mm -hmm. photos being taken from my childhood.
0: Right, and just to go even further on that, I get to the point now where I'm 44, and when I see photos of myself when I'm a really young child, the only memory that I have is the memory of this photo. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and so, It kind of just, you lose some of those memories over time. And I know some people have incredible memories that just can remember everything. And that's not me. I'm very selective on the the amount of uh, the things that I can actually remember. But I take a lot of photos. You know, I'm a photographer. So I document, like, just about everything of my family and things that I do and and so forth and that's sort of my my own way of remembering things is look back on the photos and I I remember the photos that I take but you know I don't remember the photos that people took of me and you know especially the, the photos growing up like I, you know I I, I only have that memory like if it's a photo of like a family trip to disney world or something like that it's like i sort of remember that i was there because the photo exists and for no other reason you know
1: so do photos do photos capture our past in a way how do i do photos capture our past better than our own brains do
0: well that's a good question i would say initially that it's a snapshot of a moment in time, but not even then is it really the truth because a lot of times we're asking people to smile for the photo. Maybe they weren't happy, but we see a smile on their face, so we interpret it that they're happy. So I wouldn't even say that the photos that are real are necessarily reality, you know? And we know this from social media as well. This is an epidemic of just grand proportion of people lying about who they are on social media, By the photos that they post you know we don't actually know who anybody is but we try to interpret the photos that they put online and we can see oh the well they either have a great life or they're struggling or whatever but we don't actually know the truth all we know is our own interpretation of those photos
1: but there's a there's that i mean that's i totally agree and i want to take it a step further because i think that plays very nicely caleb into a different a different aspect of this film is do you even know what's true about yourself in the case of deckard and obviously one of the best aspects and themes around this film is we're not really sure if deckard is a human deckard doesn't right. really even know if he's a human mm-hmm. so to your point yes we i mean the, the we do live in an age where social media has eroded our ability to really trust what we're seeing in terms of what what people's lives are like just in the same way that The kid who's smiling in the photo may not necessarily be happy, but uh, we might not know about other people through photographs, but do we even really know about ourselves, our own past, where we actually come from, who we are today? And Blade Runner honestly asks questions about all of, and that's, again, just another cherry on top of an already very dense philosophical film.
0: Right. And just to to touch on what you were just talking about with with Deckard and the sort of the debate over the years about whether or not, uh, he's a replicant or not, you know, this goes back all the way to, to the actual production. Now, Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford had discussions about this initially, about whether or not Deckard was replicant. And from Harrison Ford's account, they, they both agreed that Deckard was not a replicant, but years later, Ridley Scott came out and said, well, he actually interprets it, that Deckard is a replicant, which begs the question as to why did he say that to Harrison Ford? And I think there's a perfect explanation, which is his motivation as a character. He didn't want Harrison Ford thinking that Deckard was a replicant because he would have played it completely different if he had that information in his head you know mm-hmm. and so this is where the genius of directing comes in because there's these nuanced decisions that you have to make as a as a director in order to figure out what's going to motivate your actors to be a certain way or to do a certain thing and a lot of times it's it's what you tell them but but other times it's what you don't tell them and so i just thought that that was incredibly fascinating because it... It just again it it brings it to another layer where you know even if the audience is supposed to think one way, we're giving them you know half an answer, so we don't really we don't really know in the end one hundred percent whether or not Deckard is a replicant or not. We have a lot of information to suggest one way or the other.
1: I I honestly couldn't agree more, and it's it's a question that funnily enough each time I watch the film. There are times where I watch it and I think, you know, maybe he is a human. And then there are times where I watch it where I am convinced he is not a human. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned, Caleb early on was that the upsetting part about the theatrical cut of this film is it didn't trust its audience. And Mm -hmm. the problem with most films today is they, I think a lot of filmmakers and screenwriters and producers are very scared of... Leaving an open-ended film, if you will, a film that doesn't really leave mm-hmm. you with all the answers, a film that wants you to leave the theater or your couch thinking, "Huh, what do I think?" But I think all good art inadvertently should do that. I mean, don't you agree? It should it should make you reevaluate yeah. your own life or your you know to question the nature of, of of what you enjoy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that as an artist, you want to. You want to have something to say you want to lead an audience in one way or the other but the the best art is that in which invokes some kind of critical thought or analysis good or bad you know there's plenty of people who pan this film but they also gave a really good critical analysis of why they didn't like it you know i think that everything is so polarizing now that it's like it's either shit or it's the best thing ever made and <laughs> yeah. no one wants to delve into why that is you know and instead of saying like oh this well this is the greatest film ever i'm just trying to be here to talk about like why i love this film and the reasons why i think that it is a genuine work of of art and it's you know i don't think that there's any film that i've thought about more than this movie over the years. And like you said, it's like I have to I have to constantly be thinking about it and watch it every few months and reevaluate it. And it never, it never gets old. You know, it never it never gets to the point where I'm like, okay, I have all the answers now. Now I just don't need to come back to this anymore. Yeah. It never gets to that point.
1: Um I yeah, and the hilarious thing is Caleb you and I could spend a whole evening a whole day just talking about the themes not to mention the cinematography the editing the sound the music all the other Mm. incredible things about this film we could spend literally weeks talking about just the themes I do think one more theme that I'd like to discuss if that's okay before Mm -hmm. we move on to some of the other things I uh when I was in uh at university um I took a class that did uh, analyze Blade Runner. And there was a there was a student in the class that brought up the interpretation that this film is also an incredible look at sociopolitical ramifications of globalization. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wondered if we could maybe touch on that because once that uh, interpretation had been brought into my kind of uh, thought process when watching the film, it also changed the way that I could choose to interpret the film. So what I mean to say is when I watch Blade Runner, I can watch it for the existential questions about what it doesn't mean to be human. But there are also days where if I don't want to think about that and I want to watch the film, I actually can think about things that I think are quite relevant to today uh, Mm -hmm. in the the realm of the sociopolitical landscape. And, well, what do I mean by that? The film takes place in a, in a not too, <laughs> well, at the time, not too distant future, despite the fact that we're well past 2019 or whenever it's supposed to be set. Right.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: there is a hybridization of language. It's set in Los Angeles, and yet it might as well have been a city that combines Beijing, London, Seattle, and, uh, you know, countless mm. other cities in the world. People speak. Um, with a language that seemingly combines Japanese with English and other kind of Asian and Germanic languages. Uh, There's a, a dystopian kind of world where corporations run everything. It's not even that clear as to whether there's even a government. You have the incredible opening shot of the cityscape, and all you really see as the camera moves across the sky is this vast vast city of industrialization mm-hmm. and the crowning jewels are all corporate headquarters there are posters of Coca-Cola ads everywhere you look the neon lights kind of don't really read in any discernible language it almost looks like if you took katakana symbols from japanese and smashed it into hieroglyphics it kind of it doesn't mm-hmm. really make any sense but i think the film envisioned a world that we are moving closer and closer to which is this transnationalism where borders don't really dictate the culture and i don't know i wanted to know what you maybe thought about that within the context of blade runner
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the first thing that you kind of see before you know anything about this movie. You kind of don't even know where it takes place. You know, we find out later that it is Los Angeles, but initially in the first few scenes, it's like you said, it kind of like reminds me of like a cyberpunk Neo Tokyo sort of um, landscape. And it's just you know, it's very much different from the the Los Angeles that we know now, which is, you know, typically, you know, palm trees and and, and blue skies and beautiful weather. And this no is rain, just, no uh,
1: rain. <laughs> yeah, it's just
0: a dystopian nightmare, which, you know, uh, on another level, the that makes this more relevant is just the whole idea of climate change and global warming was kind of in a, in its infancy. Uh, that just the, the the theoretical science of global warming back in the '70s and the early '80s was kind of new, and so, but it's totally relevant to what's going on today and and what we know of what's happening with the world. You know, obviously, it didn't happen that quickly, like you said. Like we're past 2019 now, but there's it's definitely saying something about the way that our world is changing. And I think that it, it hit the nail on the head. And in terms of just the globalization, you know, we again, we aren't quite there yet. But at the same time, like this, this movie came out well before the Internet and social media and all of these things that allowed us to really connect on a, on a global level. And I, and so I think maybe that's not exactly happening in our cities, the way that Blade Runner foresaw it, but it's happening in our everyday lives, you know, just in the way that we are able to communicate with each other. And, you know, we're more connected to people around the world than ever.
1: The film, the to your point, the film almost kind of what interestingly shows people speaking multiple languages Mm -hmm. Everyone still understands one another. It's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting thing. Like there are scenes where Deckard will be being spoken to in some kind of Mm -hmm. Asian sounding language, but he'll respond in English. And there's, a, right. there's this kind of weird universality of where you're almost wondering if there's like live translation going on in their heads. And obviously, if you think about someone like Elon Musk with what he wants to do with Neuralink, what Google Translate has done, we're moving mm. towards a world where the things that used to separate us no longer do. And But I mean, also, this is going to sound a little weird, but I also think the, fo- the, the film has an interesting commentary on globalization through the use of food. Mm-hmm. When Deckard is walking around this city of Los Angeles, doesn't an, I mean he snacks on noodle bowls at right. what are what you would assume to be ramen stands or udon stands? It doesn't it doesn't scream America. It screams something that we've just we're maybe moving towards a city that isn't defined by a singular culture but rather a homogenous non-culture.
0: Right. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, you would think of, if I would think about how things are in Los Angeles now or in Southern California, there's a huge, you know, Mexican-American community that uh, you know, you you see a lot of people that speak Spanish. And it's kind of to to your point, like a lot of times, like people speak Spanish to me, and it's like I can't really speak Spanish, but I'm I I can understand what they're saying, yeah, and I can sort of communicate back to them, and they sort of understand what I say back to them in English, and so there is sort of that blending of the of the different uh, communities happening, but on a I, I think on a little bit different level than what. Was portrayed in Blade Runner. But it is interesting because um, the the Asian influence is definitely there. And I think that that was sort of a thing that was um, kind of a fear in the 1980s with the the rise of, of Japan. And Japan is sort of like this economic superpower in a way, and even to this day, Japan is a is a is a huge economy and a huge influence on the world. But I think that that was one of the things that was sort of anticipated back then, um, in terms of just um, not only Japan but China as well, sort of becoming this economic powerhouse and and exerting their influence on America.
1: Yeah, and and it is interesting because. When I first off, I I completely agree, and I just want to clarify for the listeners: it's not that I think Blade Runner got it uh, right in terms of where we are at today, but I certainly mm. think that it was onto the direction that we are heading. Right, I'm not I'm not saying that we are th- even close to there yet, but. I do think the film asks a lot of questions about what happens to the world as borders are broken down more and more and the role that business plays in that, because this is not a society that's run by governments, at least that's my interpretation. This is a society that's run by people like Terrell. And I mean, is the Western economic machine that the United States and Western Europe is, are we really that different? I mean... You, you, there are people that would make the make an argument that corporations run a lot today. So while the tone and certainly the stylistic take on where the future is at is uh, we are not even remotely close to, I do think the film mm. um, does offer some interesting questions as to where we might be going.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And. It's interesting to think about and science fiction films in general about like you know what it, what did it get right and what did it get wrong and um, I think that in terms of the themes it it got it all right you know in terms of some of the technical details about technology and the way that things are today um, in terms of the economics and the the socio political aspects of things it's not exactly right but the theme the themes like you said are are have really um, uh, spoken to what's happening in, in the world in 2023. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why the film continues to be relevant. It doesn't seem like an anachronism. It, it seems like it at any time that this could, put, could have potentially been a future that could have existed.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And again, just another small reason that this film is so multifaceted and deep. To use a boring word, yeah,
0: I mean, there's there, there's definitely a lot of layers, and there's so many things to unpack, and that's why uh, you sh- you shouldn't just watch this film one time and then just make an analysis on that. You just got to watch it a few times. It it demands a lot, but if you give it your time, you get rewarded. I agree, you really do. So, I know you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier with the uh, the Roy Batty character but do you have any specific scenes or moments in the film that that are your favorite
1: yeah I think the obvious if let's let's put it this way I like to talk about things as though they are objective and things that are subjective so I think the mm-hmm. objective best scene in the film is Roy batty's tears and rain monologue there's a power mm-hmm. to it there's a symbolic nature to it he releases the dove that he could crush and kill just like Terrell has done to to Roy Batty, but he makes, mm-hmm. he takes the high road, he releases the dove. And in that, re- it's in that moment that you realize that Roy Batty, while he is the bad, the antagonist, if you will, he's he's not really a, a mm. bad guy. He's just doing what I think most humans would do if they, if they were in their same, in the same position. However, my yeah. favorite scene personally, the subjective best t- uh, scene for me, is actually the scene with the first Kampf test It's at the beginning of the film and it's with Mm -hmm. Brian James. Do you remember the character of Leon? So the film opens up with this this interview and Leon has just gotten off of his spaceship uh, from a colony way out in the universe that presumably does mining. And he's been given this uh, voigt kampff test, which is like a test to indicate whether or not the robot is
0: broken or not. And... Or to tell whether or not someone is a replicant or not as well. Correct,
1: yes. And I think actually you're, 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 uh, I think it's more applicable with what you just said. He's being tested uh, to see if he is human or not. And that's probably Mm -hmm. because he has illegally broken away from the colony out in space and is pretending to be human to get by. And that scene, everything about it is absolutely incredible down to the it almost feels like a play it's 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 a very stage-like setup it doesn't really break the 180 degree rule it kind of goes back and forth between this uh this uh, interviewer and the interviewee and there's a question about empathy about a turtle on its back baking in the hot sun you know what a turtle is of course. Same thing. I've never seen a turtle, but I understand what you mean. You reach down, you flip the tortoise over on its back, Leon. you make up these questions, Mr. Holden, or they write them down for you? The tortoise lays the tortoise on its back, his, his back, belly, belly baking, in the hot, hot sun, sun beating its, beating its legs, legs, trying to turn itself, itself over, but, over, it, but can't. it can't. Not without your help. help. But you're not, not helping. What do you mean, I'm not helping? Help. Mean, I mean you're not helping. Help. Why is that, Leon? They're just questions, Leon. In answer to your query, they're written down
0: for me. It's a test designed to provoke an emotional response.
1: And you can see Mm -hmm. that Leon's character does not relate to this. Um, And in fact, it it, it disturbs him to a point where he can't really focus. And Mm -hmm. what's interesting about that scene for me is I can't tell when I watch it if if he's not empathizing with the turtle that's baking in the hot sun or if Mm -hmm. he feels that he relates to the turtle baking in the hot sun because by the end of the right. film he is the turtle he's the turtle right anyway then yeah. he gets asked a question about his mother and there's just this iconic line before he just you know shoots the hell out of this interviewer mm-hmm. uh, where he says let me tell you about my mother and i think for me that scene as a tone set up for the film it's just it's just Mm -hmm. spectacular what about you what's your favorite scene
0: yeah i i do love that scene um everything about it just the way that the the fan the ceiling fans are slowly spinning and there's just an epic amount of smoke in the room and the light is pouring through the 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 windows i mean the cinematography i mean and, and the entire film is amazing but that scene in particular and the way that they shoot interiors in this film is just absolutely incredible um so i love the look of that scene you're right it builds this tension and asks these like really interesting questions um if you've never seen the movie before you're kind of in this mode where you're wondering what the hell is even going on it's just like this guy asking these like almost like sat style questions and um the other guy's answering them so we don't really know what the hell is going on yet so it's very like a it's very much like a mysterious, tense moment. So that is a great scene. Um, I also love the voight comp test scene of Rachel. And uh, for similar reasons as uh, the, the the questioning of Leon, uh, where in this case we have Harrison Ford's character, uh, Deckard, he's the one doing the interview of Rachel. And at first he... he just assumes that she's human because Tyrell sort of suggests that, you know, Deckard is there to presumably do the test on someone else. At least he, we think that that's why he's there, but really the test is supposed to be for Rachel. And we find out later that it takes over a hundred questions before Deckard realizes that she is That she is a replicant. So during that process, it's kind of like this really interesting, tense, like, setup between the two of them. And I just love the moment of that discussion during that test. But also just from a visual standpoint, this is one of the most beautifully shot scenes like ever, in my opinion. Just the way that the production design has built the sets for the interiors of this space. You look out these big windows and you see these pyramids and the sun setting and this just this creepy fucking owl in the scene that's just (laughs) really awesome looking. And just everything about this scene is just it's a it's a perfect scene, in my opinion. And um, I just really love it. So but I again, touching back on on you, I have to agree. I mean, the, the Roy Batty scene at the end is is definitely the most memorable it's Um, it's
1: the one that hit the history
0: books we'll talk about you know (laughs) yeah and um one thing one other thing that i'll kind of touch on um is you know you mentioned roy batty is sort of releasing the dove at the end and he could crush it but he also does the same thing with deckard you know deckard is is hanging off this building and he's it's raining and it's slippery and he's holding on for dear life and he's got one hand on this ledge and he's about to fall and with broken fingers loses, nonetheless yeah he and he 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 loses his grip and Roy batty grabs him by the wrist and lifts him up and saves him and there's a there's a big question like the first few times that I that I saw that as to like just why does he save him? You know, they've been battling it out for the last 20 minutes. Um, They've done everything that they can do to try to kill each other. But there's this moment, and it's right before Harrison Ford loses his grip, where he spits in Roy's face. And there's this kind of moment where all of a sudden, because of that, Roy has this respect for him now and decides to save him. Um, Do you have any any thoughts about that? Yeah, definitely.
1: So... I think there's a couple things. First and foremost, I agree. There is a sense that just like the Dove, Deckard is helpless and is about to die. And when Roy decides to save him, I always interpreted it in a couple different ways. And each time, again, beauty of this film is every time I watch it, I walk away Mm -hmm. thinking someone different. There are times where I watch it where I think part of the reason he lets Deckard win is Mm -hmm. because he realizes that he is more human than human, that Roy Batty realizes he is stronger, he is better. I mean, the fight Mm. is quite pathetic. Basically, it's watching Roy Batty beat the shit out of Deckard for 20 minutes in a very slow Mm. and maniacal way. And Deckard can't even keep up with Roy. Roy is outpacing him, is stronger Mm. than him, is scarier than him, is more intimidating than him. And it's, it's a very pathetic unequal matchup. And I think yeah. Roy realizes that like the Dove, he could crush Deckard, like you said. And there's this kind of moment where he says, you know what? Maybe I'm not human. Maybe, maybe mm. I am something more, as we've mentioned with the more human than human line. Yeah. But then, of course, it leads into his monologue. And I think what's interesting about that monologue is he refers to humanity as you people, The opening line is, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. And that monologue gives me shivers primarily because it's almost like he's recognizing that, you know what? I'm not human. I'm something more. I'm like the (laughs) uber-human. The the next step in humanity's evolution. And then there are other times where I watch it and I feel that he has realized that in order to truly be seen as an equal he has to choose the route of empathy because I think mm. the film does a good job of really showing how cruel these replicants are. And by the end of the, of the the final scene, there's this realization, I think within Roy Batty's character that actually, you know what, nothing I do is going to change my circumstance. And so I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be empathetic to Deckard. I'm going to save his life enough, enough with the violence I've lost. Mm-hmm. And There's this moment where Deckard's listening to him, and there's shots of of Deckard's reaction to the monologue. And at the end, Deckard kind of nods at Roy as though he somehow understands why Roy did everything that he did. And, I mean, again, like I said there, I, I get a different take on it every time, but what a powerful, powerful ending scene. I've seen attack ships on fire. I watched
0: seagulls glitter in the dark and ten hours, all those moments will be lost in time, like tears in Time to die. Yeah, and just to touch on what you were saying, I think I think that. Primarily, uh, that scene is remembered because of the the tears and rain, time to die line. But it's almost like the more important line is the moment where he says, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. And and I I see that as kind of a powerful line, because that's like, to your point, kind of the moment where he realizes that he he has sort of. Transcended humanity. Yeah. So even though he is gonna die, it doesn't matter because he is something more.
1: Yeah, I you mean know, that's that is does. I mean I couldn't agree more. That's that's truly how I. That's I would say if I watched the film a hundred times, I probably feel that way eighty percent of the time. You know, eighty out of a hundred times, I feel that way. You are making me just want to watch the film like
0: now. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I mean. Every time I talk about this movie to somebody, I'm just like, fuck, why am I not watching this right now? (laughs) You know, it's like, it's, it's just so good every, every time. And it never gets old.
1: Could we, um, could we talk a a bit about the score? Because you know that my background is, I came to film quite late, uh, in life. Mm. Not as soon as let's say some of the people I went to film school with. Yeah. And music is my first love. And the score from Vangelis is <laughs> there are there are t- I own the vinyl of it i I, mm-hmm. I will put on the score sometimes and be whisked away to a place that I can't even emotionally describe. I think it's one of the most beautiful and powerful scores for a sci-fi film. I mean, it's not done in the way that like John Williams Star Wars is done or or any no. any I- other iconic scores. This is deep listening. This is there's a track called Blade Runner Blues that for your listeners out there, it's an 8-minute track, but it's the kind of song that if you listen to just on its own, it mm. it stands as just uh, just an unbelievable piece of
0: music. Yeah, it's not just background music, it's it's interwoven through the film, you know. It's the scenes where you where you hear this music, it's almost a part of the landscape, you know. And, you know, there's so many films where I could take or leave the score, you know, just sort of there. It doesn't really mean anything, it's not really that important. And to your point, I think that that's, that's sort of what's successful about john williams scores is that he's able to really encapsulate a moment and really play on the emotions of the scene but this is something completely different this is not just an accompaniment it's something that's you know anytime there's music in a scene it's it's like a required part of the scene it the scene could not exist without the music
1: yeah i mean and I agree, and and what also makes this, in particular, this score so interesting is not only does it have an original score, but it also has an original song. There's a song that Vangelis wrote uh, that features vocals by uh, Demi Rousseau, and uh, there's some saxophone by Dick Morrissey in the track, but the song is called One More Kiss, Dear. And it kind of plays mm. like an old 1950s song that you would hear in a lounge somewhere in in new york Mm -hmm. city and i don't think there are a lot of films that do not not just the score but also have like an incredible song that that takes place in a in a very romantic sense in in terms of the context of Mm -hmm. rachel and deckard
0: yeah and that song in particular really kind of kind of gives me the feeling of one of these old 1940s black and white noir films you know and in a lot of ways that's what kind of inspired a lot of the look of this film you know in terms of the cinematography with just you know streaks of light coming through windows and everything is dark and it's very low-key lighting and it really feels like a film noir and then when you hear that song it really just kind of puts you. It really puts you into that into that same kind of vibe.
1: Yeah. No, I agree. And I just want to clarify for the listeners. I may have misspoke. The person who performs the vocals in that track, it, I don't believe, is Demi Rousseau. I think it's actually uh, uh, Don Percival. But uh, please Google that whenever you get the chance. It's one or the other. But I just didn't want to say the wrong thing
0: yeah well, you know more about that than I do that's for <laughs> sure well i just i you know i love this I love the score, so I just wanted to briefly talk about it but yeah. yeah, no, absolutely and you know the as I mentioned, the score is sort of part of the the not only the landscape of the film but like the sound design is in large part the 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 music score. You know, a lot of the the sound, like the sound effects and the sound design that you hear is just kind of like silence and rain and sort of just ambient background. And so because of that, you know, a lot of a lot of the film, it's like just Deckard on his own, you know, doing his thing. That music score becomes so much more important. You know, it becomes not only the music, but part of the sound design in general.
1: Oh, 100%. And to your point, actually, uh, Vangelis did a lot of the sound effects for the scenes and built them into his tracks. So there are mm-hmm. beeps and boops and, and TV noises and radio noises and weird sci-fi mm-hmm. noises that are literally built into the track That yeah. that take place in the scene. There's a scene where... Roy Batty and Leon go to steal eyes to get new eyes so that they can't be tracked down at a parts, mm-hmm. basically at a parts lab, a, par- a lab that Bill grows parts for these replicants and mm-hmm. there are all these noises that take place in this very ominous scene that originally yeah. i thought you know we just in the actual uh, uh sound mi- mi- mixing up my diegetic and non-diegetic sound but uh right. the sound that's actually taking place on set sure and uh, in fact they, they are not even anywhere on set They're, they were built into the
0: score i just i
1: mean it's just incredible
0: Yeah, it's, uh, and just, just one other thing that I'll say about the, the score is that I, I totally agree with you, with your assessment that this is also, as much as this isn't kind of an integral part of the film, it works so well as just a standalone piece of music as well. You know, it's, um, it's just a beautiful piece of music that, you know, you can listen to and, you know, you don't have to have the vinyl. You can get it on uh, it's available even on Spotify and Apple Music and all the streaming services. So there's a lot of ways that you can listen to the music without having to watch the the movie as well. And it's definitely one of those things that uh, I listen to quite often because Van Gallis is just a brilliant musician. And this is the, the highlight, I think, of his career.
1: I agree. I mean, maybe Chariots on Fire, but when everyone thinks of Chariots on Fire, it's really just Chariots of Fire. It's <laughs> Chariots right, on yeah. Fire. I meant Chariots. Right. <laughs> I chariots meant of, Chariots of, of, of fire. 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 Yeah. Chari- uh, Chariot- fire. Chariots. Chariots would be a bunch more
0: exciting film. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's about a bunch of British kids burning.
0: <laughs> nice. Um, no, I'll no. i to see that one. Yeah, for the but, horror um, fanatics out
1: there. But, but yeah, certainly Chariots of Fire does not have as many tracks that are as iconic. It's really just the one, whereas every track on the Blade Runner right. score
0: is incredible. Right. And I guess this would be a good time to just sort of segue into 2049, if you're okay with that. Yeah, that's okay, yeah. Because... I will I'll say just right off the bat that it's a film that I love for a lot of different reasons but the one thing that's really really missing for me is is the score. It's the one thing that to me that's kind of a letdown in the film. And the music isn't bad, it just doesn't have the impact that this Vangelis score had. Yeah. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't I don't know who listens to the podcast but I'm I'm sure I, I uh I'm sure many people won't agree with me on this, but I or you for that matter, but I am not a huge fan of uh, Hans Zimmer. I, I think Hans Zimmer back in the day was, uh, he is an, obviously an incredible composer. I'm not taking anything away from his technical ability. But Hans Zimmer mm-hmm. has kind of fallen into a caricature of himself in the sense that his, his scores are almost predictable now. It's lots of really mm-hmm. loud drone noises. Yeah. I mean the score for Dune was also really horrible.
0: And I disagree with you on oh, that. Oh, okay, well, that's we all had, right. <laughs> we, 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 I know we had that argument before a couple yeah. of years ago, but
1: I I so. struggle with Hans Zimmer. So my point is just that yes, I agree yeah. with you. It lacks a lot of the soul that Vangelis gave us with his score. Yeah. And I also love 2049, but it certainly does get points taken away for it for for the lack of score.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because I, as much as I try not to compare the two, it's inevitable, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a Blade Runner film. You have to be like, you know, what are the differences? What are the similarities and so forth? We certainly don't have to get into too much detail with it because honestly, I don't think that this film has as many layers. Ye- I don't think that it's as, as quite as deep as the original. Do you have any thoughts?
1: Yeah, um, I agree. It's it's not as deep, and I think part of that is because it's it's built around the universe of the first one. So, what I would say to, mm-hmm. to listeners who haven't seen Twenty Four to Nine is it's a, it's an awesome movie. Really, it's it's what you would call the definition of a of a well made sequel. It doesn't try to be deeper than the first, and I admire it for mm-hmm. that. There's a almost a yeah. understanding from the directors and the writers that. They aren't trying to give you the same sensations that a lot of people who love the first Blade Runner uh, got. Mm. It's almost yeah. a film that captures the soul of the first one and runs with it. And right. what I what I would finish up with in that regard is I think twenty forty nine is is deep. I wouldn't I don't know if I would say it's not deep. I would say it is deep, mm. but it doesn't really give you any kind of different questions so what i mean by that is if you watched blade runner 2049 on its own having never seen the first blade runner yeah. i think people my viewers might get to similar questions as they got they would have gotten from the first one
0: yeah i would agree with that it's it works well enough as a standalone film yeah and even when they you know when they bring in harrison ford's character and the idea of him You know uh, having a child with rachel and all of those um those those things they ex they they give you enough explanation as to what's going on the the thing that i really loved about 2049 that was sort of uh, quite a bit different was i do think that it sort of expanded on the question of what it means to be human with the uh with the anna de armas character who's essentially a hologram. Right. And so Ryan Gosling's girlfriend in the film is a hologram. And so it it, it doesn't necessarily ask a new question, but I think that it expands on it e- even further. And, and, and instead of asking, you know, are the, the replicants, you know, human enough? You know, what does it mean? What's, what's the difference between the replicants and the humans that are born? But now we have these free-thinking uh, artificial intelligence, holograms that can essentially do almost all of the things that a human does just without the body. Um, so I thought that that was really interesting and just really well, uh, well done characters overall. But in the relationship between her and Ryan Gosling was just one of my favorite parts about the f- the film.
1: Yeah. I think another thing that I'll say is for 2049, I don't I think the villain, obviously everyone talks about Jared Leto, but I actually think the, the character who plays mm. or sorry, the actress that plays love, Sylvia Hoex, mm. her character is actually for me the most interesting part of the film.
0: Yeah.
1: Her character is hellbent on the destruction of of good. And that's and I mean that in all senses. She's she is a robot that hates. And there's I don't know. There's just something about her performance that gives me shivers every time I see mm-hmm. that film. The question for you is: Do you think the cinematography is better in 2049 or in the original?
0: You know, it, it, this is really painful question. So thanks for asking it. <laughs> so, in case anyone doesn't know, my my background is a, as a cinematographer and as a photographer. So these are the the visuals of films are uh, kind of the things that. I analyzed to death. Here's the things that I love about the original. As we mentioned, I love the film noir look, the, just the way that the uh, the light is captured through windows. I love that it was, you know, shot on film. You know, just everything about the way that that film was shot is just, I think it's perfect. However, Blade Runner 49 is what I would consider the greatest achievement in cinematography I think I've ever seen. Oh, that's, that's high praise. I love it. it. It is. I love it. And it's it's unbelievable. I mean, the the first time I saw this movie in the theater, I was just absolutely blown away. I mean, we should mention our our, our friend Roger Deakins won the Oscar for this film. And I was going to riot if he didn't, because <laughs> well, he had been nominated just, like a thousand times prior. Yeah. I mean, he's he's he got his moment to shine in this, but he was just let loose. I mean, the, some of the things that they they did and, you know, the uh, I don't even know how to describe some of these scenes like where, uh you know, they're in the. uh Jared Leto's office building and there's just like light shimmering off of water and just just things that have never been done before and it's unbelievable to me I mean it's just on another level and I'll watch this film forever just to look at the shots that were captured and you know the one the one downside is that it was shot on digital cameras but that's more of a personal nitpick and really doesn't take away anything from what the accomplishment is but yeah it's it's i got to give the edge if i'm comparing the two films which which had the better cinematography it's 2049
1: i think i probably agree i don't know if it's the best Cinematography of all time, I love that you think that, and I certainly don't see I could, can't think of a lot of criticisms to, to not give it that, but uh, yeah. you know, it truly really is just an uh, incredible uh, incredibly beautiful yeah.
0: film. Yeah, I mean, not to take away from all the, the amazing cinematography achievements over the years, and that could be debated forever. but this was just one of those movies where when I saw it, I just could not even believe what I was seeing. And that's that's kind of a rarity for me. And it's it's a welcome surprise. And so, um, yeah, definitely. um, You know, if you're going to see this movie for the first time, try to watch it on the biggest screen that you can possibly get. Uh, You know that fortunately we're living in a world where, you know, you can get an 85 inch TV for practically nothing now. Yep. So. It is. uh, We are living in peak home theater right now, Uh, but uh, it was definitely something of an achievement, and uh, I'm glad I was able to see it in a theater.
1: Me too. Um, And and for listeners out there, I also would point out because Blade Runner is such a—the original Blade Runner is kind of a a cult uh, classic, if you will— I would also highly recommend, if you are able to, not everyone is it going to be able to do this, but the film does get re-released for occasional Friday nights uh, or Saturday nights in cities at movie theaters. Highly, highly recommend seeing the original Blade Runner on the big screen, mm-hmm. if possible. I've done it twice now. And it it is just, it's one of those movies that when I see it on the big screen... It makes me angry that I didn't get to see it in the '80s when it came out.
0: Fortunately, the uh, the new release since I, I think they 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 restored the the original prints in 2007 when they did the kind of definitive the final cut uh, edition. Yeah, the final cut. So basically, what they did—I mean, we didn't really touch on this—but essentially, they took the director's cut um, and. Changed some of the color uh, grading and redid a few of the visual effects. Just very minor visual uh, fixes of the film, and then they did a, a new audio mix, and then they re-released it in the theaters in 2007. And that's typically what the version that you get on Blu-ray, and and that's now available on 4K Blu-ray, and all of the uh, the theatrical releases that you're referring to, Dom, are all that version now. So um, it's probably even better to see it now than than what uh, was available in the 80s. That's a good point. That's a great point. So, yeah, I mean, this is um, what I would consider the definition of a cult film, you know, a film that was widely hated and panned when it was released. And now we look back on it 40 years later as As you as you put it, a masterpiece and one of the greatest films ever made. So I don't really know exactly what the future is for for Blade Runner other than rumors of Amazon making a television show. Do you know much about that?
1: You know, I I I really I really don't. I know you had mentioned to me the other week uh, in your email to me when uh, when you asked about doing this podcast, you brought up the twenty. I think it's Blade Runner 2099, I think, is the working title. Right. I think it, if it's done well, I don't see a reason why it will necessarily be bad. Certainly, uh, it would be cool as a kind of crime neo-noir limited mm-hmm. series. But as with most things that are given sequels, the question always has to be, why does this need to be made? why right. what what is what are we going to be able to uh say that perhaps we didn't get to say the first time and 2049 got to ask some similar albeit very different questions i mean for one thing mm-hmm. the protagonist in 2049 is a robot so immediately you're put into a different kind of set of shoes for that film but yeah. i think uh the question always has to be why does it need to be made so I just hope the people who are making twenty nine ninety nine, if it does get made, are thinking about that every step of the way, and not just doing it as a potential cash grab.
0: I I agree, and you know it's always I think important to just ask the question, like yeah, you know, so what? So what? You're making this? Like what? Who's who's gonna care? You know, give us you know besides expanding on the universe, which is kind of like what everything is doing right now. Everything is is intellectual property. You know, everything is just a franchise. You know, what's what's the point? I mean, you bring the, the, the it's going to be a series. We know that much, but beyond that, we don't know what it's going to entail. It's going to take the place 50 years later. It's going to be a TV series. It's going to be on Amazon. That's basically all we know at this point. But to your point, like, is this something that we even need? You know, how is this going to, and how can it even be, even on the same level as uh, two masterpieces, you know? I mean, you're not gonna have the same, you know, you're not gonna have Roger Deakins shooting it. You're not gonna have Ryan Gosling starring in it. You know, you're not gonna have Harrison Ford. You're not gonna have Denis Villeneuve directing it. I mean, so you're already starting from this, like, you're already gotta dig yourself out of this hole. And then on top of that, you're doing a series so now you've got to create a bunch of episodes and try to like string people along for 10 or 13 episodes or whatever it is that they're going to do. I mean, I hate to be like, you know, the skeptic here, but I just don't really see a reason for it. I'm
1: with you. you know? I'm with you. And that's and that's why I'm that's why I'm saying, you know, I if it does get made, I just hope that there's good intentions behind it. I would hate for this series to be made by a bunch of bad
0: actors. That what I would really love to see is, like, another alien movie that incorporates even more of the Blade Runner universe. How about that?
1: <laughs> a a smash-up between the two universes. I guess it could theoretically be yeah, Because,
0: because you, you are aware that, that Blade Runner takes place in the alien universe. I, I don't think I knew that. <laughs> There's a few details here and there that suggest that uh, that uh, they do share a universe.
1: Is there uh, like a so. like a small uh, homage to the Wayland Corporation or something like that? Yeah, we got our phone.
0: Fo- this is something that <laughs> I uh, I came across a while back and for some reason didn't even think about it for this podcast but so I posed this question to Bard we're, we're gonna see if Bard can answer the <laughs> question for us. Okay, All right. The short answer is maybe. There are a number of clues that suggest that the two franchises may share a universe. For example, in the Blade Runner director's commentary, Ridley Scott mentioned that the Ty- Tyrell Corporation, which creates replicants in Blade Runner, is also mentioned in the Alien universe. Additionally, there are a number of visual similarities between the two franchises, such as the use of neon lights and flying cars. I don't know. Take <laughs> that as you will.
1: I mean, I, I don't know how I feel about it. I think <laughs> right. I think it's wishful thinking.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like to wishfully think.
1: Well, it would be pretty badass if a bunch of replicants were sent
0: out to kill, kill a bunch of aliens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was actually something else. There's one other thing that I saw where something on the on one of the, the monitors in the original Alien film was, like, the same screen readout as something inside the uh, the Blade Runner spinner. That's, that's cool. Yeah, so it was, like, the exact same thing. So they either just, like, reused something like that or it's, you know, it's one of those things where you see some crossover like that and it's, it makes you think. But, you know, they did have some... They did reuse some things in Blade Runner, like the Millennium Falcon. Oh, you know, yeah, the Millennium Falcon was used as a uh, part of the landscape when they were building the model for for uh, the Los Angeles cityscape.
1: Wow, that's that's I amazing. You... I had no idea.
0: Yeah, you can kind of see it in one of the early scenes where um, they're flying through the the city. And it's like the they it's literally a, a model that they took of the Millennium Falcon, and it's standing upright. Also, I'll, wow. I'll, I'll send you a screenshot. But yeah, there's a lot of little Easter eggs like that that you can look up. But that was just you know one of those things where you know the the visual effects were done um, by Industrial Light & Magic that also did Star Wars. And I think that that was sort of a nod to Harrison Ford's character being in the film. So they sort of hid this Millennium Falcon. And unless you really know what you're looking for, it just looks like a a weird shaped building, but then you look at it clearly and you know that it's the Millennium Falcon because it's obviously the shape of a Millennium <laughs> Falcon, and it's just like you can never once you see it, you can never unsee it. Let's just put it. Oh, that I way. can't
1: wait to see that the screenshot. You've got to send that to me.
0: Yeah. So. So yeah, it could it could with the the whole alien uh thing on the monitor they could have just reused something because they had it you know it was a i'm sure it was expensive to make graphics to put on a computer screen back then but that is one of those things that people suggest, oh, well, it's in both movies, so they must be in the same universe. So <laughs> I think there's a few little things like that. And I mean, you can't help but wonder if, uh, you know, Scott had some of the in the back of as well. Perhaps. But they're interesting to think about whether it's true or not. Yes, that well, they're
1: certain, Yeah, definitely interesting.
0: Yeah. So I guess we can probably go ahead and wrap this up. Do you have any um any anything any kind of a final take or anything else that you want to leave our listeners with?
1: Sure, I think I think Blade Runner is as Caleb and I have really really mentioned it. It's a it's a movie that tackles a tremendous amount of uh, questions, and it doesn't really answer them concretely. But it's the kind of film that, with repeated viewings, can give you. I think what Virginia Woolf would have called kind of a a sense of fleeting truth. And what I mean by that is it teaches you how out of control we really are from knowing certain things about what it means to be human. So to put it a different way, I think what makes this film so intriguing to me is it almost reminds me of the futile nature of questioning your own existence, because it it doesn't really make the case that truth will ever be found, mm-hmm. but there, despite all of that, despite the existential pressure that this film puts on you, the end of the film leaves me with an incredibly wonderful sense of hope, and I think that's that's really what I wanted to to, to finish on is as Deckard makes the decision to run away with Rachel. I'm not talking about the theatrical cut here. I'm talking about every cut afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a really beautiful scene where Deckard uh, makes the decision to run away with Rachel. And mm. as he's leaving his apartment, he sees an origami figure of a unicorn. And that has its mm. own meaning in the film. And I'll, we perhaps didn't really get enough time to talk about that. But there's a line, an, uh, a voiceover from, from a line earlier in the film, which is, it's too bad she won't live, she being Rachel. And then it finishes Mm -hmm. with this really somber line, but then again, who does? And Deckard nods almost past the camera after picking up this origami figure that's been left outside his apartment. And it's Mm -hmm. this kind of hopeful note of, we're never really going to find the truth. We're never really going to know what it means to be human. We're always going to be questioning these things. But at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, it shouldn't stop you from living the way you want to live. And I think that's a really poetic and beautiful tone that the film leaves us with. After being quite uh dark and existential and, and kind of uncomfortable to think about, it does leave you with right. this sense of, you know what? I might never know the answers, but that's okay because I still have a life to live. And I think that's uh the, the power of Blade Runner is it it's almost it's almost Buddhist, right? Life is suffering, mm-hmm. but if you accept that you might find some peace along the way.
0: Well, I couldn't have said it any better myself. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna leave it at that and say that once again, I think that anyone who has not seen this film should go watch it um, at least once. And if you watch it once, you should watch it twice. But I'm really thankful for you to come on here, Dom, and talk with me about this. It's always fun chatting with you about movies, and uh, it's this is a kind of a discussion that we've we've had on and off over the years but uh never to this deep of a level you know so it was really uh really good to uh kind of dive deep into all of these things and as you mentioned we could probably talk all night about this but we gotta stop it at some point so um thank you again for uh for being on here and talking with me about this
1: oh it was my pleasure thank you so much for having me
0: Yeah, and I will just mention also that uh, Adam wasn't able to uh, join us tonight, but uh, he'll be on our next episode, and um, it's his uh, it's his his choice to uh, to uh, pick the next uh, topic for us. So I have no idea what our next episode is going to be, but uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about it shortly. So uh, thanks everyone for listening.